0: testing. Hi all, welcome to Spirit Rock. My name is Temple Smith and I'll be guiding you today in this class on Sutta study. Um, or how many of you, is this the first time you've come to Spirit Rock? Okay, so everybody's been here before. That's nice. Um, If you're sitting in the back, I'm wondering if you might want to come forward. Unless you'll be ducking in and out. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Later. Hmm. So I thought we would um, begin just with a sit. Um, Maybe just a five-minute sit to help us settle. And then we'll begin the, uh, the class. So finding a posture that allows your body to be still, comfortable and relaxed. You might take a deep breath and then release it and then allow your breath to be natural. And then if your mind came with any busyness just to arrive here, see if you can relax that and let go what's easy to let go. Letting your body be calm, letting your breath be calm, letting your mind and heart be calm. And then invite your heart and mind into a place of contentment with things just as they are. Sounds come and go, body sensations come and go, thoughts come and go. See if you can rest here and now. With these transient experiences, establishing your contentment, unshakable, not dependent on what's occurring. Can you invite your mind to be content with one breath at a time, keeping it simple and easy? And for a moment, see if you can tune your attention into the fact that in every moment there is something new arising. There are new sounds or silence. New body sensations. A new breath. new thoughts and new emotions, new mental states. So once again, my name is Temple Smith. Um, just yesterday I started coming down with a pretty strong cold. So um, inside there's a kind of a swimminess, um, so that will affect me today. Uh, I'd just like to hear, um, just get a sense of who all is in the crowd. Um, so if you might say your name and where you're from that would be helpful
1: Isaac from Santa Rosa Maggie San Francisco
2: Jack from San Geronimo Uh Judy from San Geronimo
1: Hmm. I'm Ruby from San Francisco I'm Quilly from Petaluma (coughs) Karina from Sebastopol
3: Dominic here in uh,
1: Fairfax Hmm. Paula from Richmond Diana Ruth from Nevada Bob (laughs) Fatai. Andy from Larkspur. (laughs) Deidre
4: from El Cerrito. Nancy from El Cerrito.
5: Ross from El Cerrito. Jill from Sausalito. Marie from San Miguel. Sarah from Feth. Karen from Oakland. Sergio from San Francisco. Jennifer
0: from Woodacre,
6: Jim
5: Berkeley. Richard San Francisco. Shia from Pengrove.
1: Ronnie uh, oh, no, okay. from Sausalito.
3: Natalie Canfield. David
1: O'Connor. Marcia Mill Valley.
0: Hmm. Welcome. I'm curious, uh, um, before we begin the day, what was some of your um, inspiration to come today to Spare Rock? for this class, just hear from a few people.
6: Yeah. Um, Actually, I had a question about the meditation. Yeah. Is that okay?
0: Let's do the intention first and then we can open up to that, yeah. What was your inspiration for coming out today?
3: Yeah. I was able to purchase the the dense book last time I was here. Mm -hmm. There is so much rich information. Mm that I thought it might be helpful to me to hear individual perspectives,
1: Mm -hmm. and I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Was it the middle length discourses? Yeah. It is a very dense book, very thick, (laughs) almost intimidating sometimes. Anybody else?
1: have the opportunity to focus for a period of time, yeah. so this is the third in the series. And I've really been enjoying it, and, um, a little greater a little focus than teaching comes in the middle of a retreat when there's so much swimming around. Yeah. So. Um,
5: opportunity to read the original although it's not quite an original Uh catch my drift rather than just hearing other people's experience or teachings of it somewhat indirectly Uh and also when i've been reading it i often come across phrases and i think i know what that means but then i hear it has a very different meaning Uh in the context than i expected Uh too so i think getting both the original resources and then somebody who can, who's had a background that can explain it is really helpful. Mm. So it allows me to, um, to, to uh, experience it sort of a little more intimately for mm-hmm. myself as well as get feedback.
0: Holly. Mm-hmm. Back here.
5: To hear other people's uh, verbal interpretations and in their readings as opposed to just my own interpretation. Uh-huh. And also, you're teaching a workshop and next month. I thought I might go, so I might sit in the same room as you are for a while and just to see how you feel. Right.
3: <laughs> Check me out.
7: <laughs> yeah, both to deepen my understanding. And I'm also interested in knowing how the different lineages subtly interpret the scripture differently mm-hmm. and understand more whether where they agree and the controversies and that kind of stuff.
1: Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I took the Sudo's ladies class last year and mm-hmm. couldn't attend the first two. Is it three now?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um and just really like hearing the original mm-hmm. and the different um,
0: Languages and the different translations and the different ways to look at the, the poly. Great. Great. Well, lovely. Well, that, <laughs> those are all great reasons to come today. Also, it's a very beautiful place to be, Spirit Rock. So, that might be in there too. Um, <clears throat> many of you have been to Spirit Rock before. I think everybody has been to Spirit Rock before. But just um, in case you've forgotten, the the bathrooms are out this door and to the right and there's a water fountain out there too just so you can take care of yourself during the afternoon. Um, I need to leave today at 4.30 so we will probably wrap up around uh, quarter past four um, just so you can keep a pacing on that and we'll take a break about halfway through the afternoon whenever that feels natural um, and we'll take a couple of stretch breaks just to, so it doesn't get too um, too heady and then we'll give our, our bodies a little bit of a break just to Lighten that up a little bit. Um, I had the chance when I was uh, in my, when I just turned 30, to go to Burma for a year <clears throat> and um, practice with two great teachers in Burma. And their style of teaching was sort of um, almost rote presentation, and our job was just to listen to it. Um, And then we'd try to go practice, and often the way that uh, um, things were taught, it wasn't uh, tremendously elucidating that sort of we would be given information and then have to go practice. And so there was a lot of curiosity and confusion if we understood them right. Often the teachers would teach in Burmese and then be translated into English and... So we spent a lot of time looking over the suttas ourselves, seeing if we could find other information just to back up our understanding of what was happening. And so um, that time in Burma was a, was a time that I spent a lot of time with these um, with these translations and trying to glean from them support for the practice I was doing in these two forest monasteries. And then it was wonderful in the second monastery, um, I got to uh, spend more time, the first monastery, everybody practiced much more intensively in silence, so there wasn't as much time for reflection and discussion. Um, The second monastery, there was a lot more room for that. People would have tea together and ask questions and pour through the text together, so I was able to um, see the text not just as a static information that I was again pouring over myself, um, but to be with people who had spent a lot of time with it. And they were able to really fill it out. And that was helpful. That was helpful to get more of the, um, the feeling behind the text because as we read them sometimes, um, just as they're presented, they're not, they're not prose. So there's not a lot of um, stuff being filled out. They were taught in a way to be um, memorized and chanted. So the structure of them um, is helpful for that mode of learning. Or hearing something recited, then you would recite it and you chant it over and over. Then you'd memorize it because they didn't have books back then. And once you'd memorize it, you could reflect on pieces that you had memorized. But the whole structure of these discourses um, doesn't lend itself to a lot of really depth um, in just reading them, just reading them straight. So hopefully, we'll get to go through that today and. Um, pull that out, pull out some of the interesting details. Also, this, uh, this is um, maybe a small group, so it can be informal. So as we're going through it, if any questions come up, that can be uh, just as lively as the you know, straight presentation. So as we're going through it, if any questions come up, please feel free to raise your hand and um, interrupt what's happening because um, that can be very uh, rewarding as well. It's easier to do in a small group, an informal group like this. So I've chosen two different uh, suttas today, and then just a teaching piece on dependent origination, which comes out of the the second sutta. But the first one I've chosen and made copies for is uh, called the arrow. Does everybody have a copy of that sutta? It's on the back table if you don't. So on the back table there are um, two pieces of paper. One one is a double that has the sutta on it and the other has a diagram um, a diagram and a list on the other side. We'll do that one uh, later so you only need the sutta right now. <clears throat> this particular sutta um, doesn't come from the middle length discourses. It comes from the Samyutta Nikaya which is a a collection of the discourses that usually are shorter in length, and so there's a bunch of short suttas that the Buddha gave their discourses that he uh, he gave and they were memorized. The shorter ones go into um, one form of collection of his talks. then there are ones that were longer, and those were called the middle length discourses, and then there were ones that were very long. those are called the long discourses. So this one, the arrow is quite famous. Um, and it comes from the the shorter collections. So I thought what we would do is just uh, read it over, paragraph by paragraph, each one of you can volunteer if you're comfortable with that. And we'll just, um, we'll just look at it and see what's going on there and I'll build, um, I'll, I'll lend my reflections on that and you can ask your questions. So would anybody be comfortable reading the, just the very first paragraph? But before I, before I go, um, I'll just read the very top part. Um, what I did here is I took two different translations, one from Tanasara Bhikkhu and one from Yanaka Ponika Tara. And I found that <clears throat> neither one of their translations um, grabbed what I love about this sutta. They are both authentic. Um, so I combined their two translations um, to kind of map my intuition on this sutta. And then <clears throat> I studied the Pali a little bit, and I changed some things in the sutta um, from my own direct client's translations of the Pali. So those are the, th- the three things coming together. Um, Tanisaru who's an American monk living in San Diego, outside of San Diego. Yanapanika Tara, who um, I believe passed away a while ago, but he was one of the first Westerners who ordained and did a lot of translation Um, And then I've gone in and changed a few things. So you have a unique uh, translation in your hands that you won't be able to find elsewhere. Um, So would anybody be willing to read the first paragraph? Yeah. And read it loud enough we can all hear. Shall we use a microphone? Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) <laughs> wouldn't have volunteered if you knew. Um,
1: right. I have to... Is it on? Yeah. Okay. So, bhikkhus, <clears throat> an ordinary person experiences pleasant vedana, sukha vedana, painful vedana, dukkha vedana, and neutral vedana, adukha asukha vedana. A well-instructed disciple also experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral vedana. So what difference what distinction what distinguishing factor is there between the well instructed disciple and the ordinary person
0: Thank you very much for reading that So the uh <clears throat> the word there um you wouldn't have known this but the uh the, the actual pronunciation is vedana um pleasant vedana sukha vedana So this uh, first paragraph, one of the things that you'll know is that this sutta, this discourse, is going to be focusing on this word Vedana. That's one thing we learned from this first paragraph. Um, another thing we learned from this first paragraph is that the Buddha is just jumping in with a teaching. As you'll read other suttas, sometimes he's asked a question, sometimes there's a, much, there's a longer uh, preamble before he gets to his teachings. So this is something that uh, he wants to instruct. So that's an interesting fact. As you look at the structure of a sutta, you can see if the Buddha was going about his ordinary day, and someone asked him a question, or whether he comes to uh, instruct. So here when he's coming to instruct, he's in front of a bunch of uh, people who have ordained. and. <clears throat> He's thinking that it's uh, useful for them to get really um, attuned to this quality, this aspect of Vedana. And what Vedana is, is that in every moment, every moment of your day, that moment, the experience in that moment will either be pleasant, unpleasant, or it'll have a neutral quality. Every experience you have, whether it's the tingling in your feet, or something you've eaten and tasted, the thoughts passing through your mind, uh, the sights and sounds as you look around the room, everything um, generates this this quality in the heart and the mind. And that it's the very taste of whether that experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So if you were to look around this room, you might find that uh, the ceiling here is neutral, And depending on your associations with it, it might be pleasant or unpleasant. You might find the views out the window, pleasant or unpleasant. You might find other things as you look around, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that's what's happening as you take in visual experience. This quality of Vedana ends up being very important to Buddhist psychology. So it arises in every moment. It's a flavor of every moment. And it ends up playing a role, uh, a very central role, in Buddhist psychology. So that's what this particular sutta is going to um, address. Are there any questions about this word Vedana? It's the Pali word, and I went back and I, I put in the Pali where it had been translated. But are there any questions that, about what this word Vedana is?
2: Is it, um, is there a thought component to it or is it actually before
0: there's a thought? It's before there's thought. So, <clears throat> that's an, I mean, it's an interesting point. If you were to uh, walk up to somebody or someone was walking towards you and you didn't recognize them, visually you're, you're seeing them, you can see, your eye is functioning, so you can see them walking towards, but there's no perception that you already know this person. So someone's walking towards you, you might like the clothes they're wearing, you might um, see the expression on their face, those might cause whether it's a pleasant or unpleasant experience. And then there's an ignition of a perception, oh, I know you. And that perception might be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral as well. So there's, the, there's the, just the visual experience, the simple visual experience. And that might be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Someone might be wearing uh, color combinations that like clash. And if you care about fashion, you might, go, oh, I can't believe they wore that. So there's the visual experience, and then there's the beginning of how we perceive what's happening. And then that begins a, a whole uh, assembly of thoughts and perceptions Or we're adding a lot of context through what we're perceiving there's the initial visual experience there's the simple perceptions that are happening and then we build more and more complicated perceptions as we lend context each of those layers will have this taste of vedana and the vedana is very experiential and so if you were to um, if you were to press your fingernail into your skin it starts off just being pressure and at some point it becomes unpleasant it's just I'd rather it wasn't happening. That's the beginning of this is unpleasant. This is not something I want. It's, un, you know, it's intense and it's unpleasant. You might take uh, chocolate or raisins or something like that and eat them. And you chew them and as soon as that, the sweetness hits the sweet uh, taste buds on your tongue, then you taste sweetness. And if they find that pleasant, many people do, The pleasure in that moment is vedna, it's the pleasure arising at the tongue around what you're eating. Um, So the the vedna is the part of the experience that has this tone of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. A lot of our experiences tend to be neutral or so uh, subtly pleasant or so subtly unpleasant that doesn't register a lot. So we go, we go a long time without actually um, realizing that there's Vedana happening in every moment because a lot of our experiences are in the neutral range. But there are experiences that are very pleasant and experiences that are very unpleasant and that Vedana quality stands out more. As we'll learn through the sutta, the Vedana quality of an experience um, Sets us up for how we will respond to it or react to it.
1: Yeah. It also seems like very few moments have a single thing. The quality, because just in the instance you were talking about, you see someone walking towards you, but there's also, you know, you feel, the sunlight in the moment, what you ate for lunch. I mean, all of that is present in that moment. Yeah. And so isolating. One
0: thing or one vague quality yeah. moment doesn't
3: seem like a real experience: it's It is.
0: Possible. It's possible, and this comes a little bit more as we develop um, a very powerful mindfulness, where we can actually taste the multiple things that are happening. Um, and you can see that the mind is very fast. And it might have a different Veda quality, and it might stack on very quickly. It might, might What's that? One might
1: dominate.
0: Yeah, and that's, that tends to be what happens is that if you look in, you can say, is this moment, out of all the things you experienced, if zero, if zero was incredibly painful and ten was incredibly pleasant, where would you put this experience being right here, right now? Where would you put it? Neutral. It's neutral. fairly neutral. You might be getting slightly annoyed about this particular topic or <laughs> wishing you'd done something with your afternoon and that starts to like take it in the unpleasant direction. You might be like, oh, that's actually interesting. I'm enjoying this. And then it might take it in the positive direction. But there's just... Um, uh, your mind is always doing this. It's always evaluating. You can even see this in uh, neurobiology that... If things are neutral, we don't tend to invest in them that much. There's not, there's not enough of what of what's happening to have a strong pursuit of it. If something's unpleasant, we, it draws our attention to it so we can lessen it. If something's pleasant, we tend to build an association with that food or that, um, that body sensation, those thoughts, because they, they carry this pleasant quality. So the pleasant and unpleasant ones tend to be reinforced and the neutral ones tend to be neglected if we're not being that conscious. And it's just sort of the economy of the mind that um, we don't tend to pursue neutral experiences. We tend to pursue the positive ones. We tend to want to uh, get rid of the unpleasant ones. So
1: there's choice. Yeah. What I mean, you to
3: choose to focus
0: on. Yeah. There is. There are also strong tendencies that make those choices difficult. But there is choice in every moment. And we'll see, as we read through it, this quality is drawn out in several different Buddhist maps of the mind as, as being um, incredibly impactful for how we, what we do with the experience we're having, how we respond to it, what patterns develop in us by the taste of this quality made in
5: So so a a lot of this is is very personal, the reaction that one might have. One (laughs) person might react differently (laughs) to the same event as another person. Yeah. And it's also, I've thought about this as like, it's influenced a lot by certain things everybody reacts to, like fearful things, fires. Want to get away, but a, a lot of it, I think, maybe, is by conditioning in some way or another. Hmm. Whether one, I think that's true. Conditioning
0: has a yeah. A conditioning effect. would have a tremendous impact on what you find pleasant, what you find unpleasant. Pleasant. Yeah, that um, I grew up in a uh, Victorian house in Providence, Rhode Island. And so all the time I was growing up, there was a certain type of um, look to that Victorian house. And I I loved being in that Victorian house. So when I walk around San Francisco, I had this incredibly strong feeling of like, oh, it's beautiful. I love the Victorian houses. And there's a strong evocative feeling. It was like, oh, it reminds me of the beautiful homes that uh, I saw back in Rhode Island. And I've lived in places where I've lived in uh, houses that are not Victorian houses and doesn't have that same type of um, resonance with me. They can be beautiful houses, but there's just that one visual experience and the perception around it It carries a lot for me and for other people. It's just, yeah, that's nice architecture, but not as much importance. Or there might be somebody who's arguing with one person and having a great time with somebody else. Those two people see the same person, but To the person in conflict, there's a lot of unpleasant vedana arising in how you're relating to one person, and then there's a lot of pleasant vedana in how a friend or a loved one is relating to that person. So it's definitely not in the object, it's in our relationship to our experience where vedana is developed. You also can't control this aspect and so you may be looking for pleasant experiences and you might start eating chocolate and the first M&M is very pleasant the second one is okay but not as pleasant as the first the fifth one it's turned to neutral, it's sweet but it's not got that much pull to it the tenth one's a little bit sickening the (laughs) twentieth one is is like I've had enough but some reason I'm eating, I can't stop. <laughs> so it's the beginning of reactivity that our minds have this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality. It's the beginning of how we respond to our experience. And then we get more complicated in how we respond. The patterns get more and more complicated. But this one quality. So I went back and I, I untranslated this word Vedana because I find that the English translations... Um, are not that helpful. So I struggled a lot over this when I was in Burma. And It's often um, translated as feeling. So uh, you, uh, you could say, um, an ordinary person experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. And when I heard that, feelings to me is more like emotions. And so some people have pleasant emotions, people have unpleasant emotions. That's how I was translating this word, vedana. But it's, it's right in the experience. It's not necessarily an emotional quality. It's just the way that the, the mind works, that there's pleasure in the, in the contact, or there's pain in the contact, or there's neutrality in the contact. So um, that's one reason I want us to work with this word, vedana, rather than the common English translation of, Medina. Another thing in this first paragraph is we have um, the Pali there is Sukha vedna for pleasant. And that's the, the Pali phrase, the poly word Sukha has the same Indo European root as uh, sugar, as R S U G. Is the same as their SUK. The K and the G are very similar in San- Sanskrit. So it's a Sukha. You almost could make it a G, Sukha, but it's, they have a KH there. <clears throat> and so this is, a, a, they call it Pleasant Vedana or Sweet Vedana. The next one is Dukkha Vedana. And Dukkha here is what's unpleasant or what's painful. And then for simplicity, we have the word neutral vedna and the Pali is adukha asukha vedna. And it's the same Indo-European um, language structure. If you put an A in front of something, it neutralizes it or it slightly negates it. So we have adukha asuka vedna. That's a lot to say, it's a mouthful, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So we have the word neutral. Going deeper into this first paragraph um, we have the structure, an ordinary person experiences pleasant Vedana, painful Vedana, and neutral Vedana. A well-instructed disciple also experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral Vedana. So one thing to know is that on this particular path, what the Buddha is teaching, as you give yourself over to it, you don't experience less. Uh, painful experiences, you'll experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, no matter what you do. This is sort of um, shocking news, maybe, because we have this underlying tendency, we're hoping that as we make our choices in life, and as we wind our way forward, that our future will get more pleasant, or we're just looking for something more pleasant, and we're frustrated by what's painful, So, there is no distinction between this first experience. As you become more and more awakened, or even fully awakened, Mm -hmm. you'll still have unpleasant experiences to deal with. You'll still have pleasant experiences and neutral experiences. That will not be the distinction between an ordinary person and a well-taught, a well-instructed disciple. So it's maybe I have a moment of wah wah wah. <laughs> like really, oh, too bad. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, anyways, there's a wake up call there. But then he says, so what is the difference? What happens as you get more and more, um, as you train yourself and as you follow these teachings? What does happen? It's not that you'll have less painful experiences, more, pa- more pleasant experiences. That is not the distinction. But what is the distinction? And this comes into really the, the bulk of the teachings here. Would somebody be willing to read the second paragraph? Sure. Yeah. Um,
6: for
0: us, here comes the sure. microphone.
6: For us, sir, the teachings have the have the Venerable One as their root, their guide and their arbitrator. It would be good if the Venerable One himself would explicate the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from the Venerable One,
0: the bhikkhus will remember it. Okay, and so the Buddha um, asks them the question and they don't know the answer. And so they go uh, right away and saying, please teach us and we'll remember it which again is, we'll remember it. We'll actually, um, we'll learn to chant it, we'll hear what you have to say, we'll listen closely, you say it once, and then we'll learn how to repeat it. The the two Pali words there that um, I, I have is, for us, sir, the teachings have the venerable one as their root. The way it's often translated is, for us, Lord, the teachings have the venerable one. And it's actually for us, Lord, the teachings have the blessed one as their root. And I taught with uh, Stephen Batchelor, and he takes great umbrage at those two translations. Um, If you know Stephen Batchelor as a teacher, um, he's not so into uh, the religiosity of Buddhism. And for him, the Buddha was an amazing human being, but humble, and easy to approach. Um, and over time, a huge religion has built up around him that sort of uh, deifies him. But uh, changing these, uh, these two words does change the tone of the relationship. So this word "bante" that gets translated as Lord is actually a, um, an inaccurate translation. So it's funny that it, it comes through that way. When I was a monk, any monk that I had respect for, or any monk that was older, whether I respected them or not, I would call them bante, And they would call me avuso. And avuso is also a respectful term, but it just is a, um, it means sort of the younger one. And so if you have, uh, for us, Lord, the teachings, versus for us, Sir, the teachings, um, this nuance may or may not be interesting to you. Um, but it was interesting uh, when Stephen Batchelor pointed that out and when I went to the Pali I said like, where is this word Lord coming in and to see that this word uh, "bante" that I have here is very common it's very common amongst uh, monks and nuns that the the one who is uh, a little more revered is called bante. but I might say that to my friend who was ordained five seconds before me we were going through and He recited his bit faster than I did, and then he gets ordained first, and then he's Bhante, just as a cultural respect. But anybody I hold with this warm esteem becomes Bhante. So that was another kind of going into this and untranslating that one word for us. Sir, the teachings have, instead of uh, the venerable one, often this word Bhagava gets translated as the blessed one, And that just starts to get again into sort of this um, reification of the Buddha as something other than us. Something um, who is more fortunate or made of different stuff than we are. And that's possible. I mean, if you go over to India or Burma, the Buddha takes on uh, the role of Jesus. or The Buddha takes on this role of more supreme than God's. Um, And so it's easy to kind of uh, Deify the Buddha. But what made the Buddha special is not that he had this godlike nature, it's that he saw through his confusion. And that's really the only thing that he stands upon as his accomplishment and why he himself said, there is no uh, God who can teach me, there's nobody else who can teach me, I've seen through my own confusion, so I'm not still seeking answers. But over 2,500 years, there's this elevation of the Buddha into something who's made of different stuff than we are. It's also very, um, very American to want to kind of um, uh, get everybody on the same playing field. Like, we're all, we're all born equal. So when I was over in India teaching, and this um, young Indian man was traveling, is like, I get it. You finally see... I finally get it. You see the Buddha as a human who awoke, and we see it as a God who took birth to teach us. And it's like, well, I think reading his translations, he, if you believe in the multiple lives, he did do a lot of work to be reborn, but he was reborn as a human who awoke. And um, so it's an interesting thing, even just to play with these words, Lord versus Sir or Blessed One versus Venerable One, Bhagava is also um, anybody who has something to teach you and if you revere them, if there's something that you uh, resonate in them uh, as a deferential to your teacher, you might call them uh, Bhagava. So the Buddhas ask them a the question in the first one. They don't have anything to respond. Um, they say, teach us. Uh, all the teachings have you as their root, their guide and their arbitrator. So um, we really want to hear what you have to say. I'll read the next two because they're, they're quick. In that case, Bhikkhus, listen and play co, uh Pay close attention. I will speak as you say, sir. So the Bikos responded. Anybody willing to uh, read the next paragraph down here? You're going to get your exercise for the day. <laughs> Small room but many trips.
4: The Blessed One said, when touched with painful vedana, Mm -hmm. the ordinary person then also experiences sorrow, grief, lamentation, beats their chest and becomes distraught. So they feel two pains, a physical and mental pain, just as if a person was shot with an arrow and right afterward they were shot with another one so that they would feel the pain of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with painful vedana, the ordinary person sorrows, grieves, laments, beats their chest and becomes distraught so they feel two pains, physical and mental.
0: Great. Thank you. Any questions about that? So what you have is that the well-instructed person and the ordinary person will experience pain. But an ordinary person, when experiencing something painful, has reactivity. They have sorrow, lamentation. They wonder, why me? They um, regret what just happened. There's a lot of agitation. They beat their chest. I've not ever seen somebody do, but there it is. (laughs) I stepped on a thumbtack. Boom, 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 boom. So, uh, and this is um, the the teachings of two arrows. So you already get hit, hit by one arrow. It's already bad enough that something painful has happened. But then immediately, you're shot by a second arrow. And the second arrow is all the agitation, is all the the mental drama, the mental pain that happens after the physical pain. And we shoot that second arrow ourselves. No one else is shooting that. The first arrow happens because we have these bodies, they have pain receptors. There's no way to go through your life without triggering uh, painful stimuli. You just can't do it. You're gonna touch something that's too hot. You're gonna step on something too sharp. You're gonna eat something that's sour. You're going to see things that are unpleasant, but without training, without looking at it, what will happen is if something unpleasant happens, it will cause this uh, reactivity. And you'll go into a second type of suffering. This is where the saying, uh, pain is inevitable and suffering is optional the suffering that comes because there's pain, is the second arrow. As I've seen myself, it's not one arrow. I, something bad will happen, and I'll just empty the whole quill on <laughs> myself. Like, Why me? Why did this happen? Who did this? Who put that there? This world is unjust. I'll just be riddled with arrows when all there was was an initial challenge. There's traffic. I'm going to be late. Why is it this way? Why does everybody have to be in a car? Why don't they have public transportation? And just boil my mind. When all there is is it's already hard enough being late, I'm also going to add all this extra stress and tension.
1: Yeah. One thing I, I take out of the beating the chest part is kind of like drawing attention to yourself. Yeah. How bad
0: you feel yeah. and you know, prideful, you know, is how I see that. Yeah. And you may not physically do that, but we act out in many ways to draw attention to ourselves. Yeah. And so it does become, a, there's an I story to it. Something happens, and then an I drama erupts out of it. Very easy to do. We all do it. As you train on this path, you do it less. It's one of the things to check your own progress, is can you have an unpleasant experience without a tremendous amount of reactivity. Is that lessening over time? Can you just have the direct experience? When I was, um, when I was ordained in Burma, uh, there were so many unpleasant things that I had to experience in Burma that <clears throat> being privileged here in the United States we have a temperature control, so it's always 68 to 72. Uh, we can do that. Even our cars have temperature exchanges, and our food tends to be all good. And clothing is very comfortable. You know, again, if you're privileged, you don't have to experience a lot of pain. Um, and then to go to Burma and find was hot or cold. Um, there were loud sounds trying to practice meditation with hammer blows as they are building the monastery I was in going out for alms walks every morning, and it be bitterly cold. I mean, it's usually hot in Burma, but about three or four in the morning you can see your breath and be shivering cold. And it'd be this moment, this like half hour window between shivering cold and too hot. Mm. And like just right, and all of a sudden you start to feel that first wave of the heat, and you have to take off your clothes, and and it's just boiling hot. So there's a lot of unpleasant, Vedana, just in terms of temperature, let alone what you hear and see, seeing, uh, you know, wounded animals that you just don't see here. But it's common, they don't really have that same caretaking of wild animals, like dogs and cats. Just, Just seeing more unpleasant things, hearing more unpleasant things, smelling more unpleasant things than I'm used to. And the practice was how to be free while that was happening, not, can I get myself in this little Goldilocks zone where everything is just right um, and find myself happy there versus opening up and finding myself free no matter what's happening. Um,
3: Yeah. Kind of grappling with this, just the words of physical and mental, Mm it seems confusing to me, yeah um, in terms of the two arrows um, cause you talked earlier about how the um, you're steering away from using the word feeling tone, and that seems like it would lend itself to more of a mental hmm. phenomenon. Hmm. Um, and then even the words before, in terms of beating the chest, mm. I have more of a physical image versus mm-hmm. like a, a mental pain. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm just kind of grappling with the words, the English words that are here yeah. around physical, and mental. I don't know. If you yeah. Can it more, if it makes.
0: Yeah. And so we'll, <clears throat> what we'll find is that in the first paragraph, we see that there are three types of vedna, pleasant unpleasant and neutral. It turns out that there are six type of Vedana, so it's a little more complicated. There's the first three, whether the direct experience has a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality. But it's also whether your mind stays uh, in joy, in sorrow, or in equanimity, depending on what's happening. Mm. So there's there's a mental Vedana, there's a physical Vedana and a mental Vedana. And what happens is that ordinary people, if there's, there's this like two, two uh, train cars being clicked together by that strong coupling mechanism, if there's something unpleasant happening at one of your sense doors, which is the physical, the five senses plus the content of your mind, the thoughts that are happening, if that's unpleasant, you're automatically coupled to have unpleasant mental experience. That's where the sorrow, limitation, consternation, where you're agitated and the beating of your chest is a sense of a lot of internal drama because these two, the caboose and the engine, are hooked. And if this is unpleasant, so is your mental experience. And what we'll see as we read further is that as, um, if, if you only have it this way, then the only way you can be happy is if you hook yourself to a pleasant experience. So your pleasure, without training, your pleasure comes when the pleasure of the mind only arises when there's pleasure at one of your sense doors. The five senses are pleasant uh, internal thought. And then if something is neutral, all you get is boredom. Neutral experiences make the mind sleepy or dull. And so. The ordinary person, these two things are linked. Unpleasant experience causes unpleasant mental experience. Pleasant experience causes mental happiness, and um, neutral experiences call, cause a sort of dullness. What we're doing through the Eightfold Path, what we're doing through the Buddhist teachings, is uncoupling these two, so that over here you tend to just have equanimity or joy. But you don't go into internal uh, mental pain, depending on what's happening. The two responses of the well-taught person, the well-practiced person, is inner joy or inner balance, and it's it's irregardless of what's happening uh, at one of the sense doors. I'm not sure if that touched your question. Yeah, I think I think so. Okay.
1: Right, Yeah, over here. It's something similar. I was going to ask. I was going to. Can you give an example of having a, uh, an unpleasant
4: contact with the mental door, and then not having it coupled, I and having it coupled, and having it not coupled with the mm-hmm. with
0: the rest of the, the mental vedna? Um. Yeah. A separation
4: between two mental things.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> so, I'm not sure if this will translate, but when I first went on my first alms walk, um, it was like 5 o'clock in the morning, and I had a very thin sheet for a robe, and it was, it was very cold, you could see your breath, so I was shivering. And I went in to see my teacher, and I said, I, don't, I think I need to wait a month where it gets warmer before I, I'm, I'm not as strong as the Burmese are, and I, I can't meet this experience, it's just it's so incredibly cold. It's so unpleasant, I think I'm going to get sick." And he said, "Just use more mindfulness." I uh, thought, "Well <laughs> yeah, but I, it's not going to change how cold I am, and it's not going to change the fact that I think I, I could get pneumonia. It's so cold. But <clears throat> that was his teachings, and I'd surrendered to follow his advice. I'm like, "Wow, all you're giving me is mindfulness as a tool for being cold from the you know top of my head which is shaved down to my toes and just shivering. The next day I walked out and it was cold. And every time my body would begin to flinch, like it's too cold, it's too cold. It's like, okay, it's just cold. It's not too cold. It's just cold. It's very cold, but not too cold. Too cold is, ah, this isn't good. It's like, oh, wow, it is cold. But I'm, I'm not adding agitation to it. And then I would add, and I was like, "It's too cold." And I'd watch my mind get tensed, and I would relax, and be like, "No, it's not too cold. It's just cold." It's like, "Yeah, but it's too cold for this body. You're going to get sick. That's why it's too cold." It's like, "Well, I am just going to keep walking because I don't have an option. So let's relax into it." And I found that as I tensed up around the cold, my circulation would kind of go down, and that's why like, "Oh, this is why you get sick actually, because you flinch around it." But if I relax and just allow myself to be more cold than I ever had been, not doing anything about it, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, and we get three feet of snow every now and then, cold. So you wear heavy clothing. That's like the right response to cold, not relaxation. You put on clothing. (laughs) And this response would probably, you know, I've seen monks that wear hats, but the power of this response was to feel it and allow it before doing something about it. And I found that by feeling it and allowing it, it wasn't that bad. And then later when I warmed up, my skin warmed up, my muscles warmed up, my bones warmed up, and I never actually suffered. I didn't suffer the second arrow. All I suffered was the first arrow. It was definitely unpleasantly cold, but my mind didn't go into a lot of reactivity around that. I had my car broken into, and they stole my computer bag out of it. But when I sat in my car, and I saw all this broken glass, I thought maybe a baseball had come because it was by a ball field. So I was shocked to see all this glass. And when I had this first story, I was like, oh, wow, my car's broken. Oh, the window's broken. And then I realized, no, no, you've been broken into and stolen. as I went into that second frame, I saw my mind revving up going into this sort of like, oh my God, my computer's gone. And it started revving up. And I use this teaching to say, let's not add that to the fact that this is going to be difficult to get my computer replaced, cancel all my credit cards. I have so much work ahead of me. Let's not also suffer on top of this. And I was ramping up. <sighs> ramping down. What do I have to do? I should call the police. I need to call my bank. I need to do these things. Like, But I don't want this to have happened. I was like, yeah, but it did happen. But I don't want it to. Yeah, but it did. Okay. This has happened. It's already a challenging night, but looked out the windows, saw the trees. It was a nice night in Berkeley. I don't have to suffer here. I just have a lot of work ahead of me. I don't have to add suffering on top of this. I don't have to shoot 10,000 arrows in myself and whoever did this to me. It's just, this is unpleasant. And that's what the practice has done. There's a great story about um, a monk who went out wandering for food and came back and saw whatever little things he had had because he owned so very little had been stolen. And he walked into his hut, and he sat down, and he probably did his practice, trying to, like, cool out his mind. He looked out the window, and he saw the full moon rising. And he said, the thief took everything but the moon at the window. And no thief can take the moon at the window. And no, the moon at the window um, is a metaphor for your own free mind. So it's both a beautiful visual experience, but the thief can't steal my well-being. I shoot myself with the second arrow. And I have an option here and now not to do that. It's just an unpleasant experience. I don't also have to suffer on top of it.
2: Yeah. I had, um, the first time I did a retreat, uh, a long retreat, beforehand I was having a lot of back pain and I was really anxious about sitting for a long period of time. And someplace, a few days into the retreat I was still having a lot of back pain, but I was waiting in the dinner line and I was overcome with just a sense of equanimity Mm -hmm. and peacefulness. Mm -hmm. The next thing that happened was I had a reaction to that and I was almost like fighting it. I was like, how could you be Relaxed and at ease when your back is killing you. You know, so there's this. I I think there's this part of us that you know that that ratcheting up is what we do, and we're very attached to that.
0: I've seen that in my family sometimes, where something bad will happen and everybody gets really stirred up, and I tend to take a breath and not get stirred up, and it's like you're always so neutral. Ah. (laughs) And it's like, this is functional. Like I'm, I'm actually doing something functional. It's like, if you really cared, you'd be as pissed off as we are. And it's like, I care enough that I'm not going to actually boil over with being angry because I've seen it doesn't help. And there are people who um, I, when I was dating and I was younger, um, it would be very confusing because someone said, would say, do you miss me when I'm gone? And it's like, you know, uh, I like it when you're here, but I'm not actually that sad when you go. It's like, boom. <laughs> You're kidding. It's like, it's the sign that you love me, is that you're in pain when I'm not here. It's like, you know, I not know. Not so much, actually, uh, <laughs> not so much. It's not that I don't like you. I love it when you're here. And I don't, I, I watch my mind get all balled up and complicated. Like, that may feel good, but that comes with a whole bunch of drama if I actually step into that that thing. It's like, yes, I think what you're asking is, you know, do I appreciate when you're here? Yes. And do I notice when you're gone? Of course. But I don't suffer because you're gone. And that, that was hard for a lot of people to hear that. Um, and it can seem odd when people are used to um, the the drama being a sign of how much you actually care. And there is, a, there is a, a, a shadow side to the equanimity where maybe you are not actually feeling what's happening, and so you come out flat, or you've learned to kind of be in pain, but you stop actually caring for yourself. It's like, oh, you know, I have a sprained ankle, but I don't care. I'm just going to keep walking on it. It's like, well, that doesn't actually sound compassionate enough for this body. You don't have to go into drama, but do attend your body and take care of it. So it's one thing that we have to watch out for with this is not to uh, just hook yourself up to pain and not care about it. But can we not shoot ourselves with the second arrow of all that reactivity just because we're having that first challenge? And then can we deal with it? Can we deal with it from a non-reactive place but still a caring place? Anybody willing to read the next paragraph? begins as they are touched by that painful Vedana.
7: As they are touched by that painful Vedana, they become resistant. Then, in these, whoso resists painful Vedana, an underlying tendency of resistance against that painful Vedana comes to underlie their mind. Touched by that painful Vedana, they delight in sensual pleasure. Kamasuka. Why is that? Because the ordinary person does not know any escape from painful Vedana aside from sensual pleasure. Then in those who enjoy sensual pleasure, an underlying tendency to lust, Raga, for pleasant Vedana comes to underlie their mind. They do not know, as it actually is present, the arising and ending of these feelings, nor the gratification, the danger, and the escape, connected with these Vedana. In they who lack that understanding, an underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral Vedana comes to underlie their mind.
0: Thank you. So drawing out from this paragraph, it's what I was talking about earlier, that if you suffer because there are unpleasant things happening, the only way you know how not to suffer is to have a different experience. And so the languaging here is uh, seeking pleasant experiences, but it's more than seeking. It's actually a, um, a yearning, a, uh, a pursuing, um, I'm unhappy here and now, so I've got to have something to replace this. Where's my chocolate? Where's my, where can I ground myself on something pleasant because there's something unpleasant happening? And then we see this word um, tendency, so if you, if you can't stand the amount of your life that is that has this unpleasant quality, the accidents that happen or something that you can't divorce yourself from, you know, you're with your parents while they're aging, it's unpleasant. If you can't um, be with that, then you're going to end up resisting it, resenting it, and a tendency will come where you'll tighten, you'll try to push away, and you'll begin desperately seeking uh, a pleasant experience just so you can get some relief in your mind. That causes another tendency, that's one of chronically um, uh, grasping at and pursuing and planning on pleasant experiences. So we're looking at not just a one-off experience here, but if there's a trend in not being able to meet the challenges of life and what's difficult, then there's a trend of resistance, and there's a trend towards um, pursuing, grabbing onto, being uh, addicted to, seeking pleasant experiences, because it's the only way that person knows how to uh, be happy. Also in this paragraph, there is the language of uh, the gratification, the danger, and the escape down towards the end. The gratification is the Buddha saying, yes, there are pleasant experiences. That's the gratification of having taken birth. You will know pleasant experiences. The danger is we become attached to those pleasant experiences. So if you don't know the danger of pleasant experiences, we tend to grasp onto them, we tend to cling to them, overly pursue them, ask more of them than they can deliver. And you don't know the escape. And the escape is to recognize that they're impermanent. So if you know the impermanence of unpleasant experiences, if you know the the impermanence of pleasant experiences and the impermanence of neutral experiences, then one escape that will happen is just if you wait, that experience will pass. So this is the escape of unpleasant vedana. It's happening, it will change. You don't necessarily need to um, do something about it. Or you can do something about it, but not from a desperate state. My back is hurting, I'm okay with that, I can feel it, and now I'm going to shift. And there, it's alleviated. It's not a reactivity. It's not a resistance that I can't stand that first pain. I can. I'm I'm up to it, recognizing this body has some painful experiences. And I go to do something about it. That's not about um, being unable to meet the first experience. You're just responding. That tends not to be an agitation in the mind if you go about alleviating the underlying pain by first meeting it. And then lastly, um, around neutral experiences, the tendency is towards ignorance. The The tendency is to dull out around neutral experiences. They tend not to give you much in either having you run from unpleasant experiences or run towards pleasant experiences. Neutral ones don't help in that equation. So we tend to dull out or you know, worry about past or uh, future unpleasant experiences or plan on or cling to pleasant experiences. So in this paragraph, that's uh, that's some of the trend is that you're starting to develop these underlying uh, trends to the mind, underlying habits to the mind. Any questions about that? Yeah, actually, you're here first. Um,
6: yeah, well, this is fascinating. I mean, because I, I do work with... Uh... People with substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. And this really directly addresses kind of things that we that we've always said to people, which is that um, you know it's because you are resisting the negative feelings Mm -hmm. that um, you become addicted to pleasant feelings. Yeah. And that, you know, for people who have addiction issues like uh, equanimity is like almost like the most uncomfortable yeah. state you can be in.
0: People prefer drama to boredom. Yeah. Be- drama is at least something. Boredom can be very haunting. The, yeah. Well, the,
6: boredom is, equanimity is, a, I mean, that's a problem is people call it boredom. Yeah. And then it's, all, it's already negative. Right. Whereas equanim- if they could just see it as equanimity yeah. and stop calling it boredom, it's, that's a really another big issue with with people with substance abuse, they have so little tolerance, you know, and, and every, if it's not exciting, it's boring. Yeah.
0: And we have a very stimulating culture, yes. very, very stimulating, and so we've, we know the easy out of being distracted. You see people, um, I once went to the, the DMV on a Wednesday, and it turns out on Wednesdays they open a half hour. A half hour up later, so all of us that got there right on time had a half hour, and whoop, out came the cell phone, and people were just like this, mm-hmm. and everybody was sort of like zombies, like looking right at their cell phone, and just like anything, but kind of just sitting there with nothing to do. I was like, I remember that not being so much of a problem, you know, having like a half hour and I just sort of sit there, walk around, but like like being so stimulated, and then to have a half hour with nothing to do. It was like, was so intolerable. They're like, give me something. Let me do my email here. Let me fill this time with something. Um, so it's I think it's an underlying trend in our culture. And to see um, young children growing up with so much stimulation versus having huge blocks of time where, that were unfilled where you would fill it with your own imagination and creativity, Yes, now there's just a lot of stimulation. So what do you do with... Big blocks of open time.
6: So, so essentially, what he's saying here is that the lust for pleasant experience is directly related to the resistance to the unpleasant. Right. That it otherwise, it's just, of course, we don't like pleasant, unpleasant experience. Yeah. And we don't, and we like pleasant experience, but the lust, the, cra- the real craving. Yeah is, is um,
0: added on yeah. And <clears throat> here the, the language to be careful of you know there, there is healthy lust in a way where you're you're feeling a lot of vitality and a lot of um, um, ambition for something and there's a, like you know really seeing a goal and being being an empowered towards it and feeling a lot of vitality flow towards you versus the lust here raga, which gets translated as lust is really um, a deeply obsessive mind that is so uh, devoid of its own comfort and contentment. And it's just, all of your happiness is elsewhere and you're, uh, you're boiling after it and you're yearning for it and it's incredibly stressful to have something so positive but it's so far away, almost unattainable. And so you're, um, you're starving for this thing you don't have that's not a very empowered state versus having a sort of a robust appetite for whatever, you know, less often has a sexual tone to it, but you can also have a, the same type of um, passionate draw towards anything you really love to do. Is that a suffering state or is it just a, you know, a vitality moving towards something? So raga is different in that it's, a, it's really a tormented state to be in. I saw a hand over, let's go here
3: this was the first time I had heard you use the word on the tablet, and this whole paragraph in, of the Sutta is simply describing the dynamic of using attachment and aversion as an unskillful way of comforting oneself, Yeah. which is what I continually of course do after yeah. 40 years of meditating, Yeah. Um, but that, that's, the, that's the kernel of truth for me in it.
0: And those are the those are the, the trends. Is that something's unpleasant, and we resist it, so we become averse to what's unpleasant versus just letting it be unpleasant. The mind goes into its its agitated aversion around it, and there is a, a craving and clinging trend towards what's pleasant. But the craving and clinging <clears throat> come. It's an interesting. It's interesting structure here because we talk, Buddhism often says the problem of our suffering comes from our craving and clinging, but we, the strain and the power in the, the, of the craving and clinging come because we've all known unpleasant experiences. If we actually were born into a realm where there were always, we were always having neutral to pleasant experiences, we probably wouldn't have the same yearning for it because it would be common. But because we've all felt, even as little babies, something incredibly unpleasant, we get overwhelmed by that. That's what causes this craving and clinging to become such a beast. Because we have bodies uh, that give us um, access to this world, and that access to this world comes with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences.
5: The yeah. well, last sentence. Uh... Is that saying that if if one is caught in this dichotomy of pleasant and unpleasant and craving pleasant, that one can't even appreciate neutral? One It's sort of like <coughs> you're, you're stuck between pleasant and unpleasant, and that's Is that sort of yeah. what he's saying? That tends to
0: become neutral. Bored, numb. Yeah, most of us... Uh, even though we've had this body for our entire lives, can't feel our backs. There's plenty of nerve endings in our backs, but because it's mostly neutral until it hurts, it's just we have the whole parts of our body that are sort of numb and inaccessible because we haven't invested our personal intimacy with that part of our body. So over here, my shoulder is you know, usually fairly neutral, so I don't have a, a strong... I haven't reinforced the nerve endings here, to be very vivid up in my brain. So I let that atrophy over time. You come into meditation retreat and you can feel if you try to do a body scan, it's, it's pretty opaque for most of us, our bodies, except where we've invested. We invest in our hands, we invest in our faces, invest in our feet. There's a lot, lot more nerve endings there too. But there's plenty of nerve endings in other parts of our body that we've just let go neutral and slightly numb because we just don't get a lot of feedback there. And it tends not to be worth the investment. If you're running from painful experiences towards pleasant experiences, why invest in what you feel on your kneecap? It's like it just doesn't really, it's not that rewarding. So we invest in our tongues, we invest in our eyes, we invest in um, things that will give us a lot of pleasure um, as we're trying to escape the unpleasant experiences. He had a question too.
2: It's a follow-up to that question. Is there is is the phrase the the very last phrase is also pointing to something special about the neutral state? I mean, it, it, so there's a way where there's a problem of it just being boring if we if we begin to move away from the drama, or if we're still stuck in the drama. Hmm. But is there something special? Um, on the meditative path with regard to the neutral state itself? Is is, is it like a doorway to maybe further awareness?
0: It is. And so most of our meditation experience is actually trying to find something that's the slightly pleasant side of neutral because, um, one, it's hard to find something pleasant to, uh, to attach your mind to, your attention to. But when we come to, say, the breath, The breath is fairly neutral, it's not a tremendously pleasant object. We could eat chocolate all day or just have a trail mix, and you'd eat whatever would give you the most pleasure out of that trail mix all day long, trying to put pleasure at the door, and it just doesn't work that much. And you come into something neutral, and what that does is that it begins to slowly invite the mind to not be in this pleasure-pain seeking, until you find a type of contentment just with something neutral. A breath comes in and goes. The breath didn't actually cause your satisfaction. A non-agitated mind gave you your satisfaction. and You begin to uncouple the experience from the contentment. And then this can be anything. And what you find is that the mind stays in a pleasant state or in a, in a neutral state. And the neutral state isn't boring. It's just very placid. And sometimes there's waves of pleasure and then it relaxes back into something equanimous. And that um, is not hidden from or secluded from reality. You're engaged with reality, but the two things that arise in the mind is either pleasure or balance and not agitation. Even the compassion that arises tends to feel very beautiful. Even when you're in contact with, uh, I used to work in a hospice ward, and when I really came to terms with the fact that people were dying, and worked out my drama in relationship to that, then even while they were suffering, I didn't suffer. I just would have a lot of compassion for how hard their journey was. And I could sit with them, and they would feel that I was on their side but they would, they would look into my eyes and see someone who wasn't agitated that they were going through a dying process. But I had to come to terms with the fact that people actually die and what actual death and dying look like. And as I settled into that, when I went into the hospice ward, it felt very sacred. There wasn't a lot of um, negative emotional states. It just tended to be a lot of compassion when people were suffering, joy when even though they were dying, they were happy. And then, you know, a lot of neutrality, when everybody was just resting. But in all the various things that arose in me, um, there weren't negative mind states, like there were when I first got in there, where I was overwhelmed and frustrated and scared by the dying process. So there's there's a lot of room for a very dynamic, intimate uh, mind and heart, with something very overwhelmingly unpleasant. but in all that dynamic nature there isn't, some, there isn't a negative mind state where there's sorrow or lamentation or um, some type of agitation when you're in contact with an aspect of reality, like the dying process. <clears throat> Anybody willing to read the next paragraph? It's fairly short.
1: When they experience pleasant, painful, or neutral Vedana, they feel it as one fettered by it. Such a one, Bhikkhus, is called an ordinary person who is fettered by birth, by old age, by death, by sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. They are fettered by suffering. This I declare.
0: Thank you. And so here he's bringing in not just the immediate suffering and agitation, but because of these underlying trends, you start to f- see yourself um, tied to the wheel of suffering, and you're tied to the wheel of uh, birth, old age, death, and sorrow. And so you're you're um, having to go round after round because of these underlying tendencies to resist what's painful, to pursue what's pleasant, to become numb to what's unpleasant, Um, and this this structure of birth, old age, death, sorrow starts to talk about, uh, it refers to the teachings of dependent origination that we're going to get to in the second half of the class, that languaging, if you knew the teachings of the Buddha, when he brings in that paragraph, you know he's referring to in shorthand Dependent origination and that's the more detailed version of how the cycle happens This one this uh, set to the two arrows or the arrow Is something that ordinary people can feel into one arrow two arrows? Chasing pleasant experiences running from unpleasant experiences. We can all feel that but going into much more detail around how our suffering is created and how that's how those trends create not just suffering here and now, but over the course of a life. And if you have the belief over the course of tens of millions of lives where these trends get laid down and they have you um, spilling forward from one life to the next life to the next life to the next life, reinforcing these trends of running from something painful, running towards something pleasant and ignoring or being numb to what's neutral. So. There's more at stake here than just suffering in the moment or not. Can you handle the one arrow or not? These trends actually have a severe impact, and they end up, these trends when they are developed, um, fettering you, which is sort of like getting uh, manacles to the wheel of suffering that drives uh, the rebirth process. So the stakes are higher because of this paragraph where he's inferring that Anybody willing to read the, uh, the next paragraph? We'll go through this and then we'll talk about the. Yeah. Actually, can I go back to the paragraph? Sure.
1: And they do not know if it was actually present the arising and ending of these
4: feelings. Yeah. Could that be read that the benefit of
0: simply experiencing them and knowing that they're impermanent? Exactly. Means that you don't have to do anything in a, in a certain sense. Yeah, <clears throat> in a certain sense, you don't have to do anything about it. Like when I was going for the alms walk, and it was cold, you know, I had to go collect food for the day, or otherwise other unpleasant things would happen. So it was cold, and it was temporary. And even if it wasn't temporary, it just—it's um, all there was in that in that moment to face it. But it, all experiences tend to be temporary. And so because of that, the cold I was experiencing, um, it was just a matter of an hour or two of feeling cold and then the heat would come. So knowing that things arise and pass, which is in the very brief meditation when we started off, I just, into- I just suggested that you might notice that in every moment something new is happening. And when you actually train your attention to realize in every moment something new is happening, that is actually the, the true escape of unpleasant experiences, is that they don't last. You don't have to seek something different. You just have to know that they won't last. Knowing that, you can relax and then possibly change things if you wanted. But it's a different equation because you're not thinking they're permanent. You're not thinking this unpleasant thing has no other escape than me finding something pleasant. If I didn't do that, it would last forever, which is an underlying trend in our mind too. Is that we tend to extrapolate our our momentary suffering into the future, and we worry about that rather than realizing it's just arising out of the the conditions we're in.
1: It's really, it's such a delicate business, hmm. a lot of fine tuning. Yeah. On the one hand, there's surrendering a sense of control. Which yeah. But on the other hand, there are those times when you have to make a wise choice. And for me, that balance has always been the most difficult one that comes out of his teachings: is knowing when surrender is appropriate versus making a choice, That's a wise choice, and how to find that
0: yeah and there isn't there isn't really a formula around it except that if you if you can break the habit of only being compulsively reactive to something unpleasant or compulsively lurching for what's pleasant like oh there's pizza i need some (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah
1: yeah
0: Is anybody willing to read the, um, the next pattern? That it begins at the, the Now the Well-Instructed Disciple. And what you'll see in this is just really the, uh, it's the opposite of the other. We've been talking a lot about these and you'll see, we've already been talking about what you'll see here, but someone could read that.
4: Now the Well-Instructed Disciple, when touched with a painfully, painful Vedana, does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not beat their chest or become distraught, so they feel one pain, physical, but not mental. Just as if a person was shot with an arrow, and right afterward they were not shot with another one, so that they would feel the pain of only one arrow. In the same way, when touched with painful Vedana, the well-instructed disciple does not sorrow, grieve, lament, beat their chest, or become distraught. So they feel one pain, physical, but not mental.
0: Any questions about that? Um, Anybody willing to read the next paragraph?
4: Having been touched by that painful vedna, they do not resist it. Hence, in them, no underlying tendency of resistance against that painful vedna comes to underlie their mind. Under the impact of that painful vedna, they do not proceed to seek sensual happiness. And why not? As a well-taught noble disciple, they know of an escape from painful vedna other than by seeking sensual pleasure. Then in they who do not proceed to seek sensual pleasure, no underlying tendency to lust for pleasant Vedna comes to undermine the underlie their mind. They know as it is actually present the arising and an ending of these Vedna and the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these vedna. In those who know thus, no underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral vedna come to underlie their mind. When they experience pleasant, painful, or neutral, neutral vedna, they feel it as one who is not fettered by it. Such a one, bhikkhus, is called, is called a well-taught noble disciple who is not fettered by birth, by old age, by death, by sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. He is not fettered to suffering. This I declare.
0: And so that actually comes about through training. You you wouldn't be born with this. You wouldn't be born with a sense of ease around painful experiences. You wouldn't be born with a sense of allowing pleasure to arise and pass. You just couldn't expect a baby, an infant, a toddler, a young child, a teenager, or even just someone who's gone about their life in a natural way to know how to uncouple these things. I've seen people try other techniques to uncouple themselves, and so I've seen people really try to go uh, just tackle the pain in their life through drug addiction, and um, one of my family members became addicted to heroin, and probably at first it was the pleasure-seeking of it, but I also know, given her emotional turmoil, that she was probably looking for something to just cool off her heart and mind, even if it was just temporary and yet it became part of the problem, and it didn't really solve any of the underlying tendencies, and it becomes its own beast that you have to tackle, and you still have the underlying fear of pain and seeking pleasure, but now you also have to untangle this unskillful habit. And my my parents are university professors, and they've grown older, They're, they're wise people in some ways, but I've watched them get triggered over nothing and go into a lot of agitation because there's something unpleasant. There's you know, a mosquito in the room and watching the amount of agitation that comes because there's a mosquito in the room versus it's just unpleasant, versus now there's all this uh, anxiety, let alone other challenges, like the passing of a loved one or uh, the worry of being fired from your job or maybe your retirement uh, package that you set up actually um, fell through because of the stock market collapse, they're real real first arrows that are really challenging. And I've seen people get um, better and wiser as they've grown older around this. But still, they can be thrown easily into a lot of drama by whatever life is throwing them. And I've seen them have this compulsive seeking for what's pleasant and then really distraught when they don't get it. if you go on vacation with somebody and they're really hoping that vacation is going to give them the rest and relaxation and some positive like it's been so long since i tasted what was good about life i'm hoping this vacation will do it this vacation isn't doing it and it's such a calamity and just watching people get drawn into um, drama and reactivity um, yearning for an experience that's going to give them at least temporary relief from their underlying patterns and seeing how uh, it's just not up to it, it's just not up to the task. If you've been laying down this reactivity for months and years, and you expect some experience is going to relieve you from it, you, you haven't really addressed the underlying tendencies. And so maybe a, a vacation or a dinner or a weekend experience is good. And then you keep hoping like, oh, I want more of that because that that was easy, I did it right, and finally I felt relief. Oh, let's do that every single weekend. Whatever we did, we'll do that, we'll go rafting, and then we'll eat the, I'll eat the same meal, and it's, I need that, because it's the only way I know how to come out of the fact that my, my marriage, is there's all this tension, and my job, and so what am I gonna do about this? And it's like, accept your first arrow. That's what being human is like. You're gonna have your first arrow. That's the first noble truth in Buddhism. There is dukkha. There is challenges. But you don't have to add suffering on top of it. So a well-taught, noble disciple, um, having been touched by painful vedna, they do not resist it. Okay, so something unpleasant happens, and you've trained yourself against your compulsive reactivity not to resist it. This did happen. I did step on that thorn. I did taste unpleasant food. I got in an argument with somebody, and it was definitely unpleasant. Okay, but I'm not going to resist it. I'm not going to lend drama to this original challenge. I got hit with an arrow, and I'm not resisting it. It did happen. This did happen. You get in a car accident, you know... So it's a a low speed fender bender. It did happen. Yes, this is not what I wanted and it did happen. I'm not gonna resist it. What do I do? Well, get out of your car. Is everybody okay? Yes. Can you tell who is at fault? Yes or no? Do you need to go to court? Do you need have insurance? Can you walk forward dealing with the first arrow without adding drama on top of it? Not resisting that first arrow is coming to, to accord with the first noble truth. The first noble truth that uh, pleasure only lasts for so long, and then something else arises. And we're vulnerable to whatever that next thing will be. No matter how you stack the deck, something unpleasant will arise. Can you come to terms with that? If you can, if you can you're not resisting the first arrow. And you can do that with training. You can do that, you know, like when I went to uh, Burma, I was just used to living in a certain temperature zone, or having clothing to keep me in my own little temperature zone. I had never gone out of that range to feel something that cold or that hot. And I learned I didn't have to suffer with a greater range of temperature. There were foods in Burma, like durian, if you ever had durian, It's a horrible smell and taste that some people like. Um, But they would serve it and I would have to eat it. So a greater range of experience, but I didn't have to, I went in suffering over that. I came out not suffering over that. I could have a greater range of experience. My well-being was not coupled to the experience I was having. And that's what the the training offers us here. Any questions about that? Yeah. Um, Did
6: the Buddha ever teach about the third arrow, which is, you know, in my experience, what happens for me is that um, when I do react, one of the big differences for me in in practice, I still react, but then what what I find myself doing much less is judging myself for having reacted. Right. And so that's, for me, that's kind of what really keep often keeps the
0: cycle going. Yeah, and that's really the, the multiple arrows, is that you get hit by one challenging thing. And, some, and then your reactivity is a second. But then you have reactivity to your reactivity, and that's really the third. But really, you can see it as being a second, second arrow. It's like it's not only bad enough that you something challenging happened, and there's reactivity. But then you hit yourself with a second arrow around your second arrow, which became a third arrow. And you get in these chain reactions, and you get in these bad moods where everything is unpleasant because you're in such a bad mood. Anybody want to read the, the, the last lines there, all, all four of them? Then we'll take a stretch break.
4: The discerning and learned person doesn't sense a mental feeling of pleasure or pain. This is the difference in skillfulness skillfulness between the sage and the ordinary person. For a learned person who has phantomed the Dhamma, clearly seeing this world and the next, desirable things don't enchant the mind, undesirable ones bring no resistance. Their acceptance and rejection of experiences are scattered. Gone to, the end, gone to their end, do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state, they discern rightly, having gone beyond becoming to the further shore.
0: Probably the Pali was a little bit more poetic there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, often in the Buddhist time, there was um, the art of... Uh, of poetry and some of the greatest um, writings of the time were put in verse and so as the poly that he would have given would have been standardized so that people could hear it and they could recite it um, yet there is a a, a a break in the language patterning in this sutta to end with this stanza and it's something that um, would have been its own recitation where you might Just repeat that. And it would have been carefully structured in meter and rhyme to be uh, very uh, soothing to the mind to be able to recite that last part. And then you might um, chant that over and over as a kind of um, a guiding, as a compass heading of what um, coming out of this trouble around the first arrow um, and all the agitation and learning not to do that and then coming into time of your own complete freedom and awakening, having gone beyond agitation uh, to the time of uh, knowing the dustless, sourless state, discerning lightly, they've gone beyond to the far shore, and the far shore is coming out of reactivity in a complete way. So you're never drawn back into reactivity. You just take the moments that arise, as they arise, and respond to them skillfully but without them uh, kicking up a lot of drama. Mm-hmm. Any questions about that? Yeah?
5: The question of not, of not resisting, it seems to me it's one of the cruxes of the of practices, because that's an art. I mean, the, the first reaction is to resist. I, yeah. I find that. Uh, something unpleasant happens and to welcome it in some way and not resist it, I mean that for me is, I haven't learned
0: that. <laughs> no. And we all have a range. We all have a range, whereas if our experience goes beyond that range, we'll get reactive. And that range changes day by day. I have a, you know, if I wake up with a cold, my, I'm more easily drawn into my reactivity of what the day has to offer versus if I'm feeling if I slept well, for example. But we all have a general range, and then there are experiences beyond that. And what you learn to do is realize that you're having reactivity and resistance, and you see if you can meet that and relax it. And I meet my reactivity and let it go, and just come down to the original experience without reactivity. And we can all do that to some extent, and the progress is building that capacity, so that there's less and less that will draw you into that reactivity and agitation.
1: Yeah. Um, I understand it for myself, but where is the further shore? I mean, Mm is that what is that like? They have gone beyond becoming to the further shore, like just another way of understanding
0: or a different life Well, getting back to the the line, um, to be fettered by old age, sickness and death means that at each death you're reborn again. And you have to go through it all again and there's enough holding you that you're sucked into another round and another round another round. And so the image of the farther shore having gone beyond is to have unfettered yourself from these forces that keep you bound to reactivity. Oh, so transcending samsara? Transcending samsara. And there are two moments where, I mean, many moments where that happens, but there's the complete letting go, and then you still walk out the rest of your life, but you're no longer reactive. That's full enlightenment. And then when you pass away at the end of that life, there's no new being born out of that um, that momentum. And so they've gone beyond. They stop arising, actually. Let's take a stretch break to be kind to our bodies, and then we'll meet and we'll go into dependent origination.